Welcome back to the 186th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including two about the Supreme Court and some major cases that are coming their way, as well as one talking about the antics of our House of Representatives and what they decide to get up to once they're actually back in session. And trust me, you're going to love it. And then we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So will the population of the United States, will the citizens ever trust the Supreme Court again? Or is it going to be like every other institution, which, you know, it's been polling that way for quite some time when it's not in the control of one side, one side hates it. And when it's not in control of the other side, the other side hates it. But it feels like it is more divided than before. It feels like the sentiment is stronger and stronger than it has been. Then again, we almost had a period where FDR stacked the court back in the day. But even that was more of a FDR sentiment than a populist sentiment because it was blocked by the people in his party and the legislator. So is this just a downward spiral or can the trust in these institutions be rebuilt? It's a really broad question. I am speaking about the Supreme Court, but if you have a more general take, throw it down in the comment section. I'd love to hear what you have to say. So let's jump to our first article that comes from Slate. The Supreme Court is reconsidering its entire approach to the internet. And there's a nice little ending there, which is, uh-oh. And this is a very hot topic, or at least over the last few years, it has been something that people said will have to eventually go to the Supreme Court and be figured out. A lot of these internet companies are protected under 230 protections, provision 230, which means that they can operate as a publisher, but they can't be sued like a publisher, so they can take down content, but they're still not liable for the other content that's put up there, which feels like a okay middle ground. And you know, some of these tech companies have been lobbying for more outright explicit regulations and some of these courts have come down saying, oh, they are a publisher. Oh, no, no, they're more of a platform. And it's gone back and forth. And it hasn't necessarily made its way in a big way up to the Supreme Court yet. Well, Slate is talking about how this time, in this session of the Supreme Court, that may change. Quote, by the end of next June, the Supreme Court will decide whether state laws compelling social media platforms to carry content they would otherwise exclude violate the platform's free speech rights. And let's be clear, when they say here, it's not the user's free speech rights. They're saying it's the free speech rights of the platform. Just want to be very clear here. Quote, whether federal agencies and officials have unlawfully coerced platforms to remove posts that the government views as harmful, and whether government officials who operate social media pages or sites can exclude constituents' speech from those pages based on the content. So they got three big things coming up. One, do certain uh, state restrictions limit the company's free speech? Two, is it okay for the government to interact with these platforms and ask them to take content off that is harmful? And three, do officials have the right to basically uh, ban people from seeing their content or at least block them from seeing their content? So three very contentious issues. Quote, in combination, the court's decisions could fundamentally alter how social media platforms operate, when and how governments communicate with platforms to address public health, terrorism, and other harms, and whether public officials can exclude constituents from websites they use for 
official business, end quote. And I guess I didn't need to summarize it because they did it pretty darn well there. So the question then becomes on all of these, and we'll, I'll tackle them a little bit separately, or at least I'll give the opinion and I'll give why I am giving the opinion. Uh, should they be able to block users? No, they should not be able to block users. If they are using Twitter and these other platforms as social or actually, hold on, I'll use the town square analogy. If they are using these as town square places or places to get out their message to the constituents, well, what, are they going to you know, haul constituents out of that town square if they disagree with them or they don't want to talk to them or they don't want the constituent to hear their message? No, that, that is definitely going to be a violation of that citizen's rights to engage with their congressman or senator and so on and so forth. So no, they should not be able to block people because they, one, that person should have a right to hear what the congressman, senator, or any type of official is saying. But also, they should have the, or not be forced to, but they should also be required or at least have the option to see the content from their constituents. Because if you block somebody, it can go both ways. Not only are you blocking them from seeing your content, but also you're blocking their content from getting to you. And you need to be able to see when your constituents aren't happy with you. If you just block everybody who's unhappy in your delegation, it's going to be like, oh, everybody's so happy with me, no big deal. So now that one needs to go straight down. In my opinion, I think the Supreme Court will come down on the side of that, even with some liberal justices, like uh, probably Sotomayor. I don't know where Kagan's going to sit on it, honestly, and Kataji Brown-Jackson. I feel like she has a little bit of that holding power to account a streak in her, so I think she would also probably come down on this one. But we'll see how that one develops as well. So then the other one is, should the government be able to collude with companies and say, hey, these are actual threats. I think in a general sense, no, because, you know, administrations change and then it could be something where one administration says one thing and another administration says another thing. And it can kind of, you know, be a, a flip floppy situation that's not necessarily going to be good to have a particular administration telling these platforms, no, this type of speech, this thing should not be allowed because that leads to more like state-controlled media, or it sounds like that in my opinion. But also, does that mean that the FBI can't actually talk to these companies about uh, false information that they've gotten? I don't know because in theory, I would agree with it. Yeah, if the FBI has some information about how uh, Russia is going to leak some files that are going to hurt or be disinformation and try to sow discontent in our nation, then yeah, that, that sounds like something that needs to be talked about. But also we've seen other examples where they are doing it in a political fashion where they're saying, oh, well, no, th this type of information, it's not, no, you're, you're wrong, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's not actually something that is uh, valid, even though later it has been proven to be valid information. So I think it's tricky, and if I'm going to come down on one side of it, it's going to be, hey, at the end of the day, the government should not be working with these companies. But also I can understand the argument on the other side, but if we're going to have to do a all or nothing, it's going to be no government interaction with these platforms telling them what the standard should be, what type of speech is or is not allowed. So that's where that one comes down, in my opinion. And then the last one is the free speech rights of the company. 
because of you know Citizens United and a few other rulings that have identified companies that have the same rights as people, essentially, under the U.S. Constitution, there is this kind of idea that, okay, these companies have a right to speak freely. They have a right to operate as they see fit at, under the Constitution, just like any normal citizen would. And I think that that's kind of a, a I don't know, it's a tricky one. I haven't fully thought it out, if I'm going to be honest here. I think that at the end of the day, companies represent a block of people, just like a, you know, a citizen has a say in what goes on in their community. A company, which has people operating within it, can definitely, you know, protest for their own interest. But also, does that mean that they have the same free speech rights? I would honestly say no, they don't. But also, I don't want to restrict them too much because then you're going to have basically the same situation I, I talked about before where the government is saying, okay, well, this type of speech is okay, this type of speech isn't, and they're just advising them. Well, now it's just mandated by the legislator, and that just seems like government overreach again. So if I had to err on the side, no, no. The governments can't say certain content is or isn't allowed in there. And I wouldn't base it on the their free speech guidelines or saying it's because, oh, this company has free speech. I would rather say it's because at the end of the day, if you're restricting comments or different types of information that can get on those platforms, you're actually restricting the citizens that use that platform. And I think that's a more valid argument, in my opinion, than saying that the company itself has free speech rights. That's just where I come down on that one. I may be a little crazy on that. I'm, people may not necessarily agree with me, but that's where I have to draw the line on all of those. So basically, if you notice the theme, it's uh, less government intervention, less Supreme Court meddling and allowing the government to directly influence companies and the lives of people, which is my libertarian streak coming out once again. I know, I know. You guys were so shocked. So let's jump to a second quote from this article that kind of lays out one of the cases. Quote, Murthy versus Missouri, another case the court will decide this term, addresses a different form of governmental control over Internet speech. In Murthy, the issue is whether the government, through various means of jawboning or persuasion, unlawfully pressured Meta, Twitter, now X, Google, and YouTube to remove posts and other content because the government viewed it as misinformation that harmed public health or undermined electoral integrity. So there is a little bit more to the quote, but this is going under the second category of governments working with these different companies like uh, Twitter at the time, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube in order to say, oh, no, this information is not going to benefit the public. It's actually going to do harm. So we have to limit the reach of it. And that's the sole essence of where this case is going to go. And if you can't tell, Slate has a very specific opinion on it. Quote, like the Florida and Texas cases, Murthy will address the extent to which governments can control what is communicated online. But in this case, the means of control is not legislation, but behind the scenes, arm twisting and threatening legal reprisals by government officials. Plaintiffs in the Murthy's, Murthy case allege that the White House, Office of the Surgeon General, Centers for Disease Control, and FBI pressured Facebook and other platforms to remove posts criticizing government pandemic policies, supporting the COVID-19 lab leak theory, 
questioning the results of the 2020 presidential election and promoting the Hunter Biden laptop controversy. And all of these things, you know, we've seen how if you say certain things on YouTube, or at least during this time, if you said certain things on YouTube about any of these, you would get a strike if you're really popular or you would get outright removed or some people would argue that there is shadow banning going on even though we can't see the algorithm, so we don't know. But there is obviously a concerted effort here in order to make sure that the narrative goes in a very particular direction. And apparently, and the Twitter file showed and some other files that came out with uh, Facebook having the back door that directly allowed different uh, government officials to report what they thought should be talked about or certain issues that could be misinformation on uh, Facebook and other meta platforms, that there was some direct connection between the government lobbying for certain things to be taken off these platforms. So it's a very important case to be looking at, and it will really dictate how much interaction the government can have with these platforms. And it's interesting because there's a lot of swappage between the people that are in Silicon Valley and some of these tech companies and who are there writing different legislation and different proposals and policies for the administration, which it makes sense. If you need an expert from the area or a new burgeoning industry and nobody's been in Washington on this beat long enough to truly understand what's going on, you're going to bring in Silicon Valley people so that they can help you guide where the policy goes and make sure that it works for everybody. But you're also going to have those people that know people at those other companies. So you could say, hey, hey, John, could you could you talk to your friend, that high-level executive at Meta? We want to know where their stance is on this particular issue. And then, you know, they come back, they tell you, they're like, well, tell your friend that we think it's, you know, really concerning. And the meta people could take, okay, wow, okay, my friend Billy, he's he's working up there on Capitol Hill. I'm getting messages from the him about how the legislator thinks it's concerning. Maybe they take it as a threat. Or maybe these people outright threaten these executives saying, if you, well, I think like uh, Elizabeth Warren said in that hearing, if you don't control yourself, we will regulate you. And I'm sorry if that wasn't Elizabeth Warren. It may have been another. It was a Democratic female uh, senator. I'm pretty sure it was Elizabeth Warren, but I could be wrong on that. And the point is that if you don't get yourself in control, we'll be the ones to do it. So when you see that sort of outright blatant, hey, you need to get yourself in line and it needs to come down on our lines. Otherwise, we'll do it for you. These backdoor room deals are even more scary when you know that's the intent that they put out there publicly. So this is going to be a very interesting case that the Supreme Court has to deal with. There's another one that they're going to have to deal with, which I, I also thought was pretty interesting, that came from the New Republic. The battle over church and state could take down the charter school movement. And you may be thinking, wait, hold on, hold on, church and state and charter school, why, why are those two things inter? connected. And I'm going to read you the first paragraph, and then I can explain uh, where I stand on church and state uh, divide and also the charter school situation and so on and so forth. But I just want to read this first paragraph. Quote, it is a heady movement for America's conservatives who at long last seem to be able be on the cusp of getting the Christian public schools that they have fantasized about, succeeding where even President Ronald Reagan failed. With a new Speaker of the House who has poo-pooed the need to keep church and state separate and a majority on the U.S. Supreme Court that has tossed out the old rule book. It's not hard to imagine that conservatives are dreaming big, but their vaulting ambitions may yet be their downfall. 
By tearing down the wall of separation between churches and public schools, the biggest victims of conservatives' design might be conservative school policies decades in the making. And I think it's uh, interesting here when they bring up the separation between church and state because the court has taken a very uh, specific stance on this, which is we're not going to rule on anything with churches because we have to keep the church and the state completely separate. And this has set a very interesting precedent where uh, private church schools or charter schools are, are actually able to say, well, okay, for re religious reasons, we're going to fire this person. And then it's hard for the court or people who are suing to say, oh, yeah, well, we're going to worry about labor laws here. We're going to worry about discrimination. No, it was, you know, it was for religious reasons. So we can't actually make a ruling on that. I did a, a podcast about that a long, long time ago when I had a friend that was going to work at a specific, uh, actually it wasn't, it was working at a church. And I just said, hey, be aware of this. And I had done some research and I did a, a little podcast about this. So this is one of those things where there's already a hard line drawn in the sand. And what they're arguing here is that Mike Johnson, he wants more charter schools that are also you know, involved with churches and that the Supreme Court may be in favor of that, but it could degrade their movement. And the article will go on to explain why, but I want to talk about the church and state idea. So just because the Supreme Court, or let's be clear, just because the Constitution says that there needs to be a separation between church and state doesn't mean that the Supreme Court can't get involved in cases that involve religion. What they were talking about in the Constitution, to the best of my understanding, is that there will not be a state religion, a religion that is preferred over the others. That doesn't mean that the state can't get involved with churches when churches do things that are wrong or when their policies are wrong. And I think this is a very uh, interesting issue that needs to be talked about a little bit more, especially as we become a state that's a little bit more secular anyway, and we have uh, these enclaves of churches getting away with things because, oh yes, we're we're a church, we're religion, and they can kind of just get exempt. And you can see some of these smaller churches popping up that are, you know, non-denominational and they don't follow any one track, and that's fine if you want to go to that. But they can also have like mega churches that all of these churches are siphoning off funds and they don't have to pay taxes because of their tax status. When at, at the end of the day, are they actually serving the true mission of a religion? You know, some would argue no, some would argue yes. I mean, look at Joel Olstein. He has a lot of nice things, and as a pastor, should you always have the nicest things because of what you're doing? Maybe you should keep that money in the church or give it out to other charities. I don't know. But the point is, with the separation of church and state, it enables people to take advantage of the lackluster yearning from anybody in government to tackle churches because they're like, no, 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 we just need to keep it separate. And I think that could be a problem going into the future. But let's go back to the article. And let's talk about the history here because they're talking about how the charter school system is, you know, been growing for a long time. It's been a conservative heyday kind of thing. And then also the fact that there are charter schools that are run by Christians or, you know, churches. This is also something that wants to be promoted by the conservative side of the aisle. But when the Supreme Court takes up some of these cases, or one of these cases in particular, it could actually, you know, erode the 
barrier between church and state trying to say, well, no, okay, the state can actually get a little bit more involved here. And then that'll make it easier for these public charter schools that are a little bit more religious-based to be directly controlled and fall into the same guidelines that normal public schools would because you don't have that argument of there being a separation of church and state as strong. So that's their overall argument. Let's jump to the history that they provide. Quote, since the 1990s, charter schools have flourished as profoundly ambiguous institutions. Yes, they are public schools, well, sort of, funded by tax dollars and required to meet the needs of the public. But they also sometimes act like very private schools, able to circumvent some of the bureaucracy that governs public schools. As low education scholars have noted, charters are accustomed to having it both ways, largely benefiting from the impossibility of drawing a bright line between public and private schools, lines that have proven notoriously difficult to brighten. Some states legally define charter schools as public schools. Others don't. Some courts have ruled that charter schools must abide by the same rules as public schools. Some haven't. So you can see it's a little bit ambiguous here. And the next part is where they get into what they're discussing about how it's going to change if there's not a separation of church and state. And the interesting thing is if they do it on a federal level, because what they're talking about here is, oh, it's on a state-by-state level. But if they do it on a federal level and they address not just the religion issue but what a charter school is, that could actually shift the dynamics across a whole bunch of different states. And it could throw some of the systems that are currently working into chaos. So we'll, we'll see because it's a wide-reaching thing, which is interesting to look at the power the Supreme Court has. But that's the topic for another day. They basically have become legislators. Sorry, I don't want to say it, but they basically have become legislators to some degree. So let's go back to the article before I get too lost in the weeds. Quote, now, as conservatives push the federal judiciary, judiciary to bless an enterprise that would tear down the wall between church and state and empower the creation of openly religious charter schools, the strategic ambiguity that charter advocates had long nurtured seems suddenly poised to collapse. Clearly, however, the idea that a public school could be run by a church appeals to plenty of conservatives. Like Speaker Mike Johnson, there are plenty of Americans out there who think that Americans' rights come directly from God himself. There are plenty of Americans, like Speaker Johnson, who believe that the separation of church and state is an unfortunate unfortunate novelty, an artifact of the last 60 or 70 years, a relic of the tragic 1960s that has no justifiable constitutional power. And I mean... I don't know Mike Johnson's exact opinion on this, but he is a a godly man, and maybe he does want to see more schools that uh, preach some of the godly values that he absolutely loves, that he believes, and also have them funded by the state. But we'll see how this one plays out. I think it's a very interesting conversation. And yes, if the state just funds a certain type of school, which is either a Christian school, a Muslim school, or a a Jewish school. Does that mean that it's an official state religion? No. It means that they're sponsoring different types of religious schools. Now, that could be a very interesting entanglement with the separation of church and state as it is defined now. But if you take my definition where as long as there is not a state religion where, okay, we decide the state religion is Islam and we, everybody has to be Uh, of the Islam faith. That is the official religion. You will be a second-class citizen if you are not, or we're all going to be Christians, and you're a second-class citizen if you're not. You don't get the same rights. That is very different than saying, 
uh, hey, you can have whatever religion you want. We're going to fund all these schools. As long as they don't fund one religious school over another, then I don't think they're actually going to run into an issue here. But that's just my opinion. There are legal scholars who are yelling at me right now, like, Alex, you don't even know what you're talking about. You're so wrong. But, hey, enlighten me in the comment section. I'd love to hear what everyone has to say, and I'd love to be called out as wrong because then it gives me a chance to examine my biases. So let's jump to our final article that comes from Fox News. In this one, I mean, come on. I, I, I'm i just going to read you the headline, and then I'm going to go through it. And it's kind of frustrating, to be honest. I don't absolutely love this one. I just thought it was really freaking stupid, so I had to talk about it. McCarthy slammed with ethics complaint after allegedly shoving GOP lawmaker who ousted him. So this is, yes, okay, guess what? Matt Gates is getting his revenge. Matt Gates didn't like that McCarthy was having an ethics investigation about him, so now he's trying to hoist one upon McCarthy. It's just a tit-for-tat game. They don't like each other. It's petty, but, hey, it's our politics, apparently, so we're just going to roll with it. But let's get to the quote from the article. Quote, Rep. Matt Gates, Republican of Florida, is calling for the House ethics investigation into former Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, for allegedly assaulting another GOP lawmaker, Rep. Tom Tim Burchett, Republican of Tennessee. In a U.S. Capitol hallway earlier Tuesday, Burchett had accused McCarthy of having elbowed him in the kidneys when walking past him along with his security detail at the end of the members-only House GOP conference meeting. McCarthy said any contact that was made was an accident. Burchett said it was a cheap shot by a bully. Needless to say, this incident deserves immediate and swift investigation by the Ethics, ethics Committee. This Congress has seen a substantial increase in breaches of decorum like anything, unlike anything we have ever seen since the pre-Civil War era, Gates wrote in a letter to the Health Ethics Committee Chair Michael Guest. He is a Republican from Mississippi. So, yeah, okay, maybe they contact each other. Maybe he did take a cheap shot at him, but are we really going to throw this out there? I mean, let's be clear. If he did take a cheap shot at him, I guess he needs to be investigated. I just don't trust the source. I, I don't trust the source. It's more than possible that they accidentally contacted each other, and Matt Gates and Burchett, who both voted to ouster him, who both don't like him, are drumming something up. I just don't trust the source that it's coming out of in this one, especially when we know Gates has said that his ethics committee investigation was drummed up, and he we know from backroom reports that he resented McCarthy for not getting it taken off the docket. So come on, are we going to be childish? Are we going to play at this like we're five years old? I'm using the exact same argument that Matt Gates is using, which is, oh, this is childish. This is a, a breach of decorum. How dare we have somebody that's willing to do this? It's not okay. Come on, man, grow up. You lost. Okay, actually, I take that back. You won. You got Mike Johnson in there rather than McCarthy. You won. You may still have that investigation on your back, which is why I said he lost. But guess what? You got McCarthy out of there, and you got your way with Mike Johnson, even though Mike Johnson's not that different from McCarthy anyway. So come on, man. Grow up. So there's there's one more thing, and it's actually the complaint itself that has a little bit more language. I'm going to read this one. Once again, it's not necessarily because I enjoy it, but because I feel like got to get the information out of there. 
Quote, Gates wrote in his ethic complaint that Burchett is within his rights to decline to press charges against Rep. McCarthy. Given Rep. Burchett's comments on the matter and the statements of public witness, I request that the House Committee on Ethics to proceed immediately with an investigation into the facts of today's incident, including interviewing under oath the alleged assaultant, assaultee, and any witnesses, Gates wrote. The Florida congressman, meanwhile, is subject to his own probe by the Health Ethics Committee over allegations of sexual misconduct and misuse of his funding. So guess what? We're just going to investigate everybody. You know, if you bump into somebody, let's investigate them. If you think that funds are misused, let's investigate them. If you did some stuff when you were younger and you were stupid with, you know, uh, your... Uh, sexual advances, guess what? You know, we're just going to investigate. Let's investigate everybody. Let's find something and get them all out of there. Let's get them all to be censured and get them all out and just start fresh because at this point, it's just a popularity game that is so freaking tiring and I am just done. We're, we're not going to talk about this anymore. We're going to move on because it's a it's a pretty pointless story. Gates is just looking for his time in the spotlight. So, with that said, let's jump to our daily delight. We're going to end on a positive note. We're going to get out some of that frustration. And this one comes from HITC. Bear Cub plays with Red Balloon in seriously cute TikTok video. And while I don't love TikTok myself, and I don't want to necessarily give TikTok videos more of a boost, I do think that this one was warranted. Very cute. There's also photos embedded in the article. So, you can just see those there without having to watch the whole video on TikTok. But, you know, apparently it's not just humans that can really get lured in by this uh, little trick that Pennywise does. Uh, and you'll understand what I mean here in a second. Quote, the clip captured a scene that's been compared to a real-life storybook after the cub found something all children like. Balloons. Both the older bear and cub appeared from the grass onto the highway, and before the cub stopped in its track upon seeing the balloon attached to the drain. So a red balloon attached to a drain, you see where it's coming from? But, uh, you know, he didn't actually foresee this one, and he didn't get to play with it forever. Either. He didn't know what was going on, but also he didn't get sucked into the Pennywise drain because, you know, it, actually, I'll just read the quote for you. Quote, eventually the balloon let loose from the drain after the bear became slightly too energetic in its play with it and floated into the sky. As the bear appeared to watch it disappear, the mom soon approached the cub and they gently interacted with each other. So mom's like, hey, get away from that drain. Pennywise is down there. He is ready to take you. And the bear's like, okay, I was having fun with the balloon, but okay. And if you want to see any cute photos or videos of their interaction or read any of today's articles, there's a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the Twitter handle at your daily flip where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. A little bit less scripted, a little bit less quotes, really short 10 minutes. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.